Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Zoe Griffith. Today we're very happy to welcome Professor Omar Sheta for a discussion revolving around the issue of the capitulations, that boogeyman of 19th century Ottoman history, but getting deeper into what the study of the capitulations can tell us about the nature and the limits of sovereignty in Ottoman Egypt prior to the British occupation of 1882. Uh, Omar is Assistant Professor of Middle East History at Bard College, and he's currently working on a book about empire, law, and capitalism in the modern Middle East. So, Omar, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, this section of your project is looking quite closely from several angles at uh, these overlapping and ambiguous jurisdictions between European and Ottoman Egyptian legal forms in Egypt. And the question of ambiguous jurisdiction is connected to a larger argument about the nature of sovereignty in a province that is simultaneously part of one empire and in a sort of proto-colonial relationship with another empire. Um, so to set up this discussion, maybe we could start by talking a bit about how we should understand the question of sovereignty or jurisdiction, whether these are the same, um, leading up to the mid-19th century. So we've we've already it's it's already been established and there is a lot of writing and scholarship coming up about the idea of uh, sovereignty as being divisible right divisible sovereignty and for a lot of studies before the 19th century before the maybe mid 19th century the divisibility of sovereignty is manifested primarily around different groups within the empire. So the Ottoman subjects, that the, the most famous iteration of this is the idea of having a Sharia court and then having confessional courts belonging to other mm. religious groups and so on. Mm. We don't know positively how large or effective this network of non-Sharia confessional courts was, but at least in theory, this is what we think is happening. What's happening in the, in the mid-19th century is there are several layers that are being added on top of this. Mm -hmm. We have layers of state-organized courts that do not subscribe to Sharia, Sharia forms of evidence or kind of the Sharia logic. And at the same time, we have European consulates seeing themselves more actively as alternative um, judicial forums. And so we have a situation in which potential litigants are not only choosing among different kinds of courts within that belong to a particular legal tradition in the empire, but we have many different layers. And the the idea of forum shopping, which is very prominent also in kind of in the pre-modern literature, in the literature on pre-modern on kind of pre-19th century history, becomes less and less satisfactory as you advance in the 19th century because it seems like the choice of judicial forum is being more rigidly determined. Right. So this idea of forum shopping, which um, we see mostly, you know, litigants can choose between madhabs or particularly uh, maybe non-Muslim subjects. We imagine, as you say, we don't know what courts they were going to, but they could um, ap appeal to the Sharia court if it benefited them for this purpose. Uh, I mean, when it comes to European subjects, for instance, what would they have done in the early modern period before this proliferation of legal forums? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there were, there were always the, the idea that, and this is where maybe the, this goes back to your initial question about sovereignty, um, is that extraterritoriality is the norm in a way. Uh, By which we mean what? so individuals who, um, let's say, merchants. That's kind of the 
prototypical person who would be in the Ottoman Empire before the 19th century would be someone who's the law of the country or empire from where this person is coming, the law follows this person, basically. Mm -hmm. And so if there is a dispute, then the dispute is going to be handled by by this person's diplomatic representative. Right. Um, a lot of, and we'll probably come back to this during the conversation, of course, a lot of disputes are being resolved outside of formal uh, judicial forums, so we don't see them. Right. But I don't know for sure, systematically, what happened if someone who is not an Ottoman subject needed to resort to a court in the Ottoman Empire. One of the main uh, tools or institutions that brings us to this question of um, the governing of extraterritorial subjects is the capitulations, which has a very long uh, literature written about it, I would say, in Ottoman studies. But talking about the 19th century and specifically about Egypt, what can we say is is sort of particular about this moment, this mid-19th century moment? What's different, and this is partly what kind of caught my attention when I started working on this, is that the capitulations have a very long history. And we're told, when, when you look at the start point and the end points of it... Um, you I mean, get it starts a, in the 16th century, essentially, right? With right. The, and this is what we... This is the story we're often citing, right? And sometimes in the 1500s, the Ottomans willfully grant these capitulations, extraterritorial privileges to the French primarily, initially, and then to others. Um, but this insistence on um, identifying the 16th century capitulations as being willful concessions mm-hmm. that are meant to promote trade and so on, granted by the, the, the Sultan, and then looking at, at, the, at the capitulations in the 19th century, as the way they're represented is that they are tools of exploitation, basically a way to earn legal immunity, to break the law and not be uh, tried and so on. The the question for me was how, so what happened Mm in the, you know, in the 300 years in, um, in between Egypt in particular is interesting because Egypt is identified and if in, in, in the literature and in, even the most canonical sources. So if you look at the Encyclopedia of Islam, for example, under Imtiazat, mm. the article is written by Gabriel Baer, and you'll notice that he writes there, he has a few lines in which he says, you know, this is what the capitulations are, and just FYI, in Egypt, the capitulations are much more excessive and are being exploited to a much larger extent than anywhere else in, in, in the empire. And this alerted me to the fact that maybe something different is happening in mm-hmm. Egypt. And if the, if this, I mean, he's not just making this up. He gets this impression because he knows the history of the 19th century. So the question is, if Egypt is one place where the capitulations are manifested, whatever politics surrounding the capitula- capitulations are expressed or are manifested much more clearly, then maybe this is the place to understand how the capitulations work because mm-hmm. they're not hidden. They're mm-hmm. very, very explicit. Well, how do you mean that they're explicit, I suppose? So there are, Egypt is in, in after the 1840s, after Mehmed Ali's settlement with the Ottomans um, and the establishment of a hereditary dynasty. There is, there is this confusion, which I think is not only a confusion for historians, mm-hmm. but probably confusion for 
the 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 pashas mm-hmm. and later hadiths of Egypt as to what exactly the relationship to the Ottoman center is and what the relationship to the imperial capitals of Europe, especially mm-hmm. Britain, is like. And so, as they're basically organizing and reorganizing the bureaucracy, as they're establishing, I'm thinking about the governors of Egypt here, as they're establishing new legal codes, new judicial forums, etc., one thing they're doing is that they're trying to expand their authority over what happens within Egypt. One side effect of this, as, they, as they're separating themselves, or at least managing directly the affairs in Egypt and separating this management from what's happening in the Ottoman center, is that there are new areas of legal tension mm-hmm. and dispute that are opening up mm-hmm. in which now Egypt or the, the, the bureaucracy, the government of Egypt needs to deal face to face with the representatives of European empires, not through the, the this shield, the Ottoman, this Ottoman shield, basically. But, but at the same time, uh, presumably the borders or lack of borders means that there are Ottoman subjects who are not Egyptian also in this milieu. I mean, Right, which is, which is actually very interesting. And this is one thing I took note of when I was uh, reading the documents. Initially, I thought there, there must be some kind of difference in terms of legal status between those Ottoman subjects who are also subjects of the Egyptian government or of Egypt's government and those who are um, only temporarily there because mm-hmm. they're based elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But I saw no evidence that this distinction is being made at all. And it's interesting because you can see here you can see you can see here how complicated this notion of extraterritoriality yeah. is by basically saying that every Ottoman subject who is in Egypt at any given time is going to be under the jurisdiction of Egyptian courts is actually to negate the extraterritorial logic. It means that the law is territorial. Mm-hmm. And so the court records refer to... Um, to Ottoman litigants in the court inter- interchangeably as subjects of the local government, or subjects of the of the Ottoman government, right? And you see this being used interchangeably, which means that the, the court doesn't recognize the difference between these categories. I mean, which brings us, I guess, to the nature of the courts or the issue of the courts, which is very, very interesting. You're dealing, I mean, you're bringing together two sets of archives. I mean, the you have consular courts, which are these kind of widely jurisdictional bodies, and then you have these merchant courts. And maybe we can start by talking about the merchant courts, which I think are not very well known. I mean, where did they even, where did they begin? How far do they extend? Right. So the the beginnings, the, what I look at is what's referred to in the in, in most commonly in Egyptian bureaucratic language in the nineteenth century as Majelis et Tujar. Um, Majelis et Tujar, I, I just translate as merchant courts, and we can come back to this uh, to to why this translation specifically. But these merchant courts are 
basically mixed courts mm-hmm. with a small M um, in which merchants, both, both Ottoman slash Egyptian merchants and European merchants are represented. They preside over the court and then there's one bureaucrat that, the, that Egypt's governor appoints is the, is the president of the court. Um, this president doesn't really intervene in the deliberation and kind of regular procedure mm-hmm. um, of the court, but has certain uh, functions. Most importantly is, is, is that he serves as a tiebreaker. Uh-huh. Um, the the number of times where he where which I've seen in which he actually needed to intervene and vote for one um, side or the other is very very rare. Okay. Most of the time, the, the the decisions are unanimous. And what kind of bureaucrat are we talking about? I mean, uh, who would the who would these European merchants have agreed to put in that position of? Authority, if he if he has potentially the ability to break ties, I don't know enough about the the specific backgrounds mm-hmm. um, of these. I know the names, mm-hmm. and I've seen some of these names also appear in other administrative mm-hmm. capacities mm-hmm. within within the government at different times during the nineteenth century. Um, Could they be Muslim or Christian potentially? Or now that you say that, now that you now that you ask this, I think the names are usually Muslim. Okay. But the merchants themselves, the local merchants, are both Muslim and Christian, and or Muslim and non-Muslim. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea here is that having this mixed, um, th- having this mixed um, court basically is going to preside over the the mixed court is going to preside over all disputes in which um, the defendant is an Ottoman subject. Right. So this means merchant disputes among Ottoman merchants mm-hmm. and disputes in which a European merchant is suing an Ottoman merchant. Okay. In your piece, um, it creates some very tricky and ambiguous situations, uh, not only for the Ottomans or for the Egyptians. I mean, there's all these kind of moving parts of uh, Ottoman subjects in Egypt and then Egyptians in Egypt and then Europeans in Egypt, but it's even for uh, European consulates, not always clear who they're dealing with or who they have rights to. I think what we miss when we think of the capitulations of only tools of exploitation is exactly this, is that we want to see, we we create this fictitious binary, Mm, basically, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between those who are locals and so are belong to the empire, belong to the legal regime of the empire, and those who are foreigners who are completely immune from the legal regime of the empire. They are, they cannot be questioned for anything they do. And they're also almost a, a homogenous group, right? If they're British, then they're British or, or they're French, etc. So this binary is, I think, wrong, confusing, and fictitious, but giving it up, but there is, but there is a lot of resistance to giving it up hmm. because of the political implications. The political implications of saying that the capitulations were not simply about exploitation is basically uh, endorsing the colonial logic, mm-hmm. right? Is, is, is siding with the colonizer. So if, if we can 
for a moment suspend the sensitivity and look below the surface and basically ask the question of what are the capitulations and how do they work, we start to understand we start to understand the dynamics and we start to see these areas of ambiguity. So ultimately, this is about the extraterritoriality is about states of exception, right? There's nothing fair or equal about it. This still, saying that it's not fair doesn't tell us how it works or who benefits from it. So once we look below the surface, what we see is, or this is this is how I understand it, and this is how I, I try to explain it, is that we have two bureaucracies. We have the bureaucracy of Egypt's government, and the primary and the primary objective of this bureaucracy is or of this government is to to speak very generally to maintain law and order. Right, and to make sure that the economy is running smoothly and that people are buying and selling and that debts are being collected, etc. So they need these mechanisms. They need these legal mechanisms. Now, they also realize that there are all of these exceptions that are already in place, have been in place for a very long time, mm. which are the capitulations. Mm. Their initial response to the existence of these enclaves in which they cannot extend their legal authority is not to abolish is not to abolish them they're not talking about abolishing the capitulations they're thinking about how to incorporate the, the capitulations within a system that is functioning right. on the other hand you have the consulates and in my, i've only looked systematically at the british consular records uh, from the mid 19th century and what i see is also ultimately not only explicit political actors, diplomats, agents of empire. I mean, they are these things, but they're also ultimately bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. So they want to make sure that disputes are being resolved, that debts are being collected, etc. They're not primarily, systematically, consistently interested in shielding anyone who's a British subject from the law. What I think these two parties agree on the the Khedival government in Egypt and the British consulate, and I assume other consulates as well, is to find in, in relation to commercial disputes in particular, and in relation to the question of debt collection in particular, mm-hmm. is to find some kind of mixed forum in which both of them give up something in that context. Using a legal history or studying the the court, the practice of these courts um, to study the capitulations is so important because it's very easy to approach the something like the capitulations and look for patterns and kind of look for you know we we kind of know how they function and I want to study how they function and let me look at when everything was going sort of smoothly and as expected. This legal history lens, I think, tends to um, tends to gravitate towards points of breakdown almost, like when things aren't running smoothly or these disputes that kind of mushroom out and give you a much uh, more expansive or deeper view of how these things are working. So, I mean, the incredible thing about what you've done is you 
rather than looking at the capitulations as these tools of exploitation, you see what are the limits of that exploitation. So, Right. One thing that I've noticed um, when looking within the internal correspondence in particular, initially I started, when I started doing this research, I was in Cairo and I was looking at the Egypt government kind of state enacted um, merchant courts. And what I was noticing is that there are all of these outgoing requests to European subjects, basically asking them to appear before the court. Um, And these requests are not answered. And so, you know, the first request, they're all formulaic, of course, but initially, you know, you send a request saying, please come to the court on that day. And then when nothing happens, a week later, you start, you can see that the tone of whoever is writing these requests in the merchant court is becoming more and more desperate. So they, they, they start kind of, you know, asking really hard and pleading and so on. And there's no response. If you only see that side of the communication, right. it seems as if because the Europeans enjoy legal immunity, they just don't care. They will never show up. Right. But once you see, once you look into the consular um, archive, you notice that the consular officials themselves are unhappy with this because they have signed up for this kind of mixed forum yeah. and they want it to work. But they don't have a means to enforce um, to, to, to enforce these decisions. And enforcement works in interesting ways as well and unequal ways. Mm. So the Ottoman... Um, the, the 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 Cairo's police department can force an Ottoman subject to appear to right. appear before a court, right. but it cannot, without the the consent of the consulate, force a European subject to appear before the I court. See. And now, do you ever find examples of granting of consulates granting the police department not the I, to do that? I haven't seen that in relation to commercial cases but i think that in criminal cases mm. there are there are cases in which this is happening and the difference here i think is not is basically a difference in terms of there is a cost to doing something like this um for the consulate and so what the consular officials are doing is that they're deciding whether to how far are they going to go to make this forum work in certain situations, they really want it to work. In other situations, they'd rather have it work, but if it's not working, it's not working. Um, and certainly in criminal cases, the urgency is different. Um, the pressure also probably put on them is different. Yeah, and does it have anything to do um, with the status of the plaintiff? You know, whether they respond to pull someone into court, does that have anything to do with the status of the other party, with the Ottoman party? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Um, one thing that I've focused on maybe disproportionately when doing this research was the process. Mm -hmm. And in, in focusing on the process, I kind of didn't pay as much attention to the specific identities, um, of these historical actors. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes Mm -hmm. there are names that appear and I recognize them or, if I, you know, with a little bit of research, I can tell who these people are and I know that they're very influential, but in other places, um, they're just names. Um, and because of issues that have to do with access to the archive, but that's maybe another story, um, I'm unable to track these names in right. any systematic way. So if, if they show up again, then maybe I know one more thing about them. If right. they don't, they don't. 
unfortunately common in our in our line of study, I think. Uh, I mean, so in paying attention to the procedural aspects, um, what were uh, what were you most interested in within the kind of functioning of the court, and what were what did, what were the surprising bits for you? There are two things that are noteworthy were noteworthy for me here. Um, one is that one thing that separates these new judicial forums from Sharia courts is the extent to which the legal logic that informs the decisions is explicit. Mm -hmm. And so if you read any of these verdicts, you read, you don't only read the, uh, a summary of the case and then a decision as to who's, you know, who's right and who's wrong, but you read a summary of the case as told by one of the litigants, a summary of the case as told by the other litigant, a summary of the case as understood by the court, and then an explicit reference to the, legal, the statutes, legal codes, and specific articles of them that are relevant to this case, and then the decision. Wow. So, so you're, you're looking here at a very visible shift in the legal culture. Right. This I had a sense that I would find, but, but was still extremely striking mm. because what the commercial courts, the merchant courts in particular are doing, which maybe other courts are not, is that they have several legal references that they can appeal to, and they appeal to them in a particular order. Mm -hmm. So initially, after understanding the case... The, the merchants presiding over the court are supposed to look at the Egyptian government-issued statute of the court. If this has the answer, then this is it. If not, then they have to return to the Ottoman Code of Commerce. If the Ottoman Code of Commerce doesn't have the answer, then you go to the French Code of Commerce. And you see explicit references to each of these three bodies of law. Wow. And, and there is a very clear hierarchy as yeah. to what, what, is being, what is being applied first. So this is one thing that I think is, or this is one aspect that seemed to me to be, this was very surprising to me. I didn't, I mean, I understood that there will be state enacted regulations, but I didn't think that this is what it, mm -hmm. this is how it would be applied or mm -hmm. this is how it would look like. The other thing um, which I thought I might find traces of are traces of a Sharia-informed logic mm, mm -hmm. as to what constitutes legitimate commercial activity, um, but also Sharia-informed forms of evidence, for example. And this was the this was the big surprise for me: is that none of these things were there. Evidence is established primarily based on textual evidence. What's most important for the court is to have to ascertain the authenticity of signatures, for example, or to or even to bring in experts who were who would look at erasures uh, in a contract and and try to decipher you know what is what is the original contract. Oral testimony is almost absent or all. Or, or only is brought into litigation 
as a supplement to textual evidence. So you would, for example, witnesses would come to say, yes, I saw or I was there when this contract was written. Mm. Mm-hmm. But the, the legal soundness of the format of the contract, um, the erasures on the contract, the clarity of, of a signature, the legitimacy of the, of, of the exchange itself, all of this the court will decide on only on the basis of what is written. Um, the other thing is that I was wondering whether people would, um, litigants who went more frequently, or because there is at least you know a generation of merchants who used to go to the Sharia court and then right. now we're told to go to the merchant court, right. um, would also maybe think of certain commercial activities, credit-related, interest-related, etc., as... Not necessarily, either as problematic or at least would have a specific language to talk about it or would be bringing a certain understanding of when are these forms of money-making legitimate or not. Um, And this was completely absent. Hmm. There is no mention, I don't think I came, very, very rarely did I come across anyone making an argument in which they said, you know, this is, I'm being asked to pay interest on, on a loan and this is legally, you know, wrong. Yeah. Uh, because Sharia says it's wrong. In the very few occasions when this happened, the court would dismiss it immediately, basically. On what grounds? On, on the, it would just that they say, don't recognize it would ju- Exactly. Yeah. They would just say, this doesn't, this is not in our book, so... You know, I, I, maybe outside of the court, they would say, you know, I, my hands are tied. But anyway, yeah. I mean, there's no, there, there's, you don't see at least in the, the, the archive of the record, what is left for the, the paper trail that's left to us by the record, mm. any sign that this was a contentious issue. Where it's contentious, interestingly, is in the European consular courts. Mm. So in the British courts, in the British consular courts, you have... Iranian and Indian merchants, Muslim merchants who show up in the consular court and say, you know, we have a dispute and we want the consular court to become, you know, to to decide on this issue. And they say, we're Muslims. So, you know, we want you to follow the Sharia norms when deciding on this case. Mm. This never happens in in, Majel, in the Ottoman uh-huh. kind of Egyptian Majelis Etoujan. So the option exists, but in the consular courts, in the European consular courts, and only for protégés of of that consulate? or Yes. Yeah. So what you have is basically the consulates themselves. These are the agents of colonial empires. Um, and these are the same people whom within a couple of decades are going to, the British in particular, I mean, once Egypt is occupied by Britain in 1882, one of the first things that the British colonial administration will say is that the Egyptian legal system is a mess. We need to systematize it and create something modern out of it. Um, But the truth of the matter, I mean, this is empirically uncontested, is that this is a legal system that had the, and I don't use this as necessarily a positive adjective, but it had 
it manifest it it had all of these modern aspects mm-hmm. to it in terms of the ex, the explicit uh legal logic the 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 forms of evidence the the clear hierarchy of um of legal um of 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 bodies of legal literature that are going to be that that are codified and are going to be referred to in a particular way mm. engaged with in a particular way etc whereas it was within the consulate within the british consulate that the consular officials were not interested in a systematic and consistent perfectly streamlined legal regime were were interested in arbitrating in mm. resolving issues and they resolved issues based on the identity of the litigants um on the religious identity So in a period where there's this new proliferation, I guess, of institutions, um, presumably there is a certain amount of confusion. I mean, there's ambiguous identities, there's multiple forums. Uh, I mean, how did people choose where to go? Theoretically, there is a clear... There is one ideal forum that any given case should be heard before. So there is no, this kind of forum shopping option is there. But of course, not only do the litigants themselves not always know that, cannot identify it easily, but also the forums themselves, the judicial forums themselves, are not always entirely clear as to whether they have jurisdiction over a case or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So the way that the way that the British consulate and uh, the, the Cairo Merchant Court, for example, speak about, see themselves and, and, and speak about themselves, I, I don't mean this figuratively, but literally write mm. this in formal communication, they would say that they are uh, mediators, wasata mm. or wasit. And so they are basically happy or, perf- or willing frequently to refuse to, hear a case. They would say, this is not within our jurisdiction, go to the consulate. Or this is not within our jurisdiction, we will forward your case to the merchant court. Um, at, in one interesting case, you have the British consulate thinking that it has jurisdiction over a case, rather than co- decides to communicate directly with the Cairo Police Department and says, please send us this person because we need to, he, he needs to attend a trial. Um, and the police department writes back and says, we, we cannot take orders from you. You have to go through um, the merchant court. Mm-hmm. And so you can, you can see that this is within, I mean, in the, the British consulate is the one body that represents kind of the British government. So there's nothing very complicated here. It's the same set of people who do the administrative work and then who preside over um, the consular right. court. But the, the the Egypt's government is growing, and it has these the independent or kind of to some extent autonomous departments within it, and these are see themselves as specialized. They only take orders 
in a particular way. They only do certain things and not others. They mm-hmm. only hear certain cases and not others and so on. So you're right to think about or, or kind of to see this confusion or anticipate this confusion. There is a great deal of confusion. Um, to give you one maybe revealing example of this, if we are to, and, and link it to the, to the earlier question about, about forms of evidence and procedure, is that you have um, British merchants, especially m- most frequently I've seen Muslim, Indian Muslim British subjects who are in Cairo and who want to collect a debt from an Egyptian or an Ottoman merchant. Um, and so they go, they, they follow the proceed. they ask the, the consulate, so what do we do now? And they say, well, go to the merchant court. They go to the merchant court, but what they're surprised by, especially if they, they're not residents or they've only been around for a short period of time, is that they go to the court expecting it to function like a Sharia court. Mm. And so they are surprised by the fact that the laws that are being applied and 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 cited, the logic of the court itself, the way that the arguments are being made, etc., is different. Mm-hmm. And so they oftentimes, at least in the first round of the li- of litigation, they lose. And what you do, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there, there's the option of appeal, but every interaction between a British subject and the merchant court should be mediated through the British consulate. So they go back to the British consulate and say, okay, we want to take this to the, to the next level, but we want the, these Egyptian Ottoman courts to apply Sharia to us because, because we're Muslims. And of course, the, the, um, and the reason why they think this is a reasonable argument to make is that in, in disputes between um, Indian Muslim merchants, British merchants, ex- between where the plaintiff and the defendant are both Indian Muslim right. British subjects, right. they go to the cons- they go to the British consulate, and the British uh, um, uh, consulate consular officials. Y- accept this Sharia logic and basically to the extent that is possible or to the extent that they know or think they know, they are applying Sharia. They're basically deploying Islamic law to resolve the dispute. It's only in the, in the, in, in the Egypt slash Ottoman Majelis uh, al-Tujar that these British Muslim merchants find themselves in a difficult position because they don't know how to make an argument. They're surprised by the fact that Sharia is not applying to them and so on. And it's so interesting. Both of these institutions are so interesting and so kind of, um, I mean, we've talked, you've explained uh, how they arise to meet a certain set of conditions and needs that are very specific to maybe the 1840s and that mid period in the 19th century but I mean things as we know change dramatically uh, later on so what happens to these institutions? The mid 19th century is interesting and I'm talking here about the the last years of Mehmet Ali's rule after the settlement with the Ottomans after 1841 up until the mid 1870s so the uh, the establishment of the mixed courts, this time with a capital M, mm. oh, uh-huh. and ultimately the 
the, the British occupation of Egypt in 1882. What happens in, the, in this middle period, in these middle decades of the 19th century, is in many ways less known to us than what happened before and what happened after. And so the way that I understand, for example, Majelis et Tujar, the consulates the the consulate's function is going to change in the 1870s and 80s especially 1880s but also the context itself will change because it will become a colonial context right. and so you don't need a british consular court if you have a british colonial administration <laughs> that's in charge of the country what happens to the to the to the state organized this network of state-organized judicial forum, these uh, Majlis al-Ahkam and Majlis al-Tujar and so on, is that they're going to be reorganized and absorbed into what will become the um, the national court system, mm-hmm. which is established in the 1880s. Majlis al-Tujar in particular are going to end interestingly. They're just going to be dissolved uh-huh. and the cases are going to be channeled into different kinds of courts after in 1876 and this is a okay. very significant date because this is the date that the mixed courts start operating mm. and so the mixed cases are going to be forwarded to the mixed courts and the um, Ottoman Ottoman or Egyptian Egyptian cases are going to be channeled into um, civil courts um, what is interesting in in this period, though, and we've touched on this in different ways during during this conversation, is not is this is a period of of confusion and discovery, basically, and it's not only about the the individuals, the subalterns, right, the merchants, etc., discovering how to navigate the system, but it's also that the system itself is not entirely legible to the people who run it. And so this is why they keep reorganizing it and and they keep trying to come up with schemes as to when to cooperate and when to draw the line. What is happening in this period, though, we can think of as... We we can think of, I think, in in two ways that are complementary. One is, rather than think of the colonial context... 1882, the British occupation, what comes after, as a radical break from what came before, we should think of this as a continuum. And so, and so understanding the middle decades of the 19th century is basically one missing link in the genealogy that links Ottoman modernization attempts in the late 18th century, Mehmet Ali's project, the Tanzimat, etc., to European colonialism. Mm, mm-hmm. This is so. This is a way to 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 kind of link these episodes together. Mm. And the other the other way to understand it is that this is a period of legal experimentation. We can think of all time periods as periods of legal experimentation, but this is a period of particularly intense legal experimentation. Yeah. And this is, I'm speculating here, but I think that it's the the experiment of Majelis et Tujar between the 1840s and the 1870s is basically an experiment in creating um, a standing, permanent, mixed judicial forum. It worked in some ways, it didn't work in other ways, but ultimately, by the 1870s, 
there is now a decision and a political will both on on the side of of the Khedivial government in Egypt mm. and several European government many 15 17 mm. something like mm. that European governments that deci- that actually after years of negotiating decide to create the mixed courts which are going to now over not be limited to debt collection merchant disputes etc but is going to be the court right. that has exclusive jurisdiction over any dispute that includes any foreign slash European read European um, interest right. and so even these experiments that seem to be so innovative that occur at the moment of uh, Ismail and the Egyptian government declaring bankruptcy and becoming effect, I mean, partly colonized. Now you start to have European ministers sitting on the government, etc. Right. So this is, if, if we are to think of this as a breach of sovereignty that is very clear and that is going to be become complete in 1882 or at least kind of much more pronounced in 1882 with military occupation, then we should understand, we would be making a mistake to understand, to, to think of something like the mixed courts in the 1870s, which continues to function up until 1949, okay, wow. so after okay. World War II, yeah. to think of them as coming directly out of this colonial context. In fact, I think they're coming out of Ottoman and specifically Egyptian Ottoman experiments at modernizing the legal system. And so understanding is basically, if we don't understand this, the, the, the middle decades of the 19th century, creating the mixed courts in the 1870s also looks like another moment of exploitation sure. yeah. um, or, or appears exclusively as exploitation. And so, which, which is how it becomes understood later on in the 19th and early 20th century and becomes the main target or one of the main targets of the nationalist movements. Mm-hmm. So in an interesting and kind of subtle way, these attempts to govern, to govern the market and to govern society at large in the middle 19th century is, is what's going to draw the limits of the imagination of the legal, governmental, political developments that are going to take shape in the, in the 20th century. Right. And I mean, that's such a valuable point because, I, f- I mean, especially for Egyptian history, but for Ottoman history generally, I think those middle decades of the 19th century, um, until we understand them better, everything that comes right at the end is kind of takes on maybe... Uh, larger-than-life proportions, or, or it seems like it sort of comes out of um, one particular personality, something like this, but or a great exogenous shock. Um, so I think that treating this long durée almost, something like the capitulations in the long durée for this period is extremely valuable. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, thank you so much for joining us. It was a really valuable discussion. Thank you. Uh, if you want to find out more about Uh, Omar's work or the context that he's working within uh, we'll have a short bibliography appended to this podcast Uh, please check it out and uh, please join us next time thanks